Okay, let's uh, first just recall each of us uh, your deepest purpose for being at this retreat and for practicing and just uh, rest in that purpose for a moment. It's just settling into it, that very purpose. Then I'll say the prayers of refuge in bodhicitta. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and supreme spiritual community, I take refuge until full enlightenment by the power of generosity and all six perfections. May I realize Buddhahood for the benefit of all beings. I take refuge in the expanse of space, primal awareness, and unconfined capacity which is the nature of everyone's mind for the sake of all, which is the nature of everyone's mind for the sake of all. just rest in the qualities evoked by that gong meditation. So uh, 
during the uh, pandemic, uh, my wife's, uh, my wife Barbara's yoga teacher, Catherine, pointed out how contracted many of us are, uh, not just during the pandemic, but that further exacerbated it. Uh, how contracted we're feeling in our bodies and our hearts and our minds uh, within our uh, kind of driven, competitive lives and uh, painful concerns about the state of things around us and in our world and in our families and communities and so forth. So there's a tendency to just contract within heart and mind, kind of tightness in the flow of our emotional energies and in our body. So uh, Catherine, her, her yoga teacher, point, pointed out that it can be important to learn ways to physically uncontract, kind of open and make space, as she put it, uh, as in yoga postures for opening the chest and shoulders and back and hips. And that's extremely helpful, of course, I think, too. In the sustainable compassion training practices that we're taking up, which are adapted from Tibet, besides those, way, those kinds of ways of, of making space, as it were, we learn to access a space that's already here, not made by us. Um, a space that's available in the background or the ground of our experience and is also uh, a, a basic space in and through all of our experience. So our experience is actually a kind of basic space undivided from uh, the, uh, uh, the qualities of experiencing. A basic space undivided from uh, qualities of awareness, qualities of experience. That actually is our fundamental being. But the basic space part of that uh, has generally been ignored. We're not noticing it. Um, so all the prior meditations, actually all of our prior meditations are related to this. Uh, they bring out powers as, as we've been exploring. They can interrupt what's impeding the underlying capacities, powers of love and compassion and uh, uh, qualities of spaciousness, uh, capacities for deep acceptance, deep allowing, deepening discernment as we're, are, we're freed up enough to be able to see more or sense more. And in the releasing phase of all the meditations that we've been doing, that last final releasing phase of, uh, we're letting those loving qualities kind of help the mind feel safe enough uh, to release its narrow frameworks, its, its customary narrow frameworks that the mind keeps generating, reifying, and uh, grasping to as reality itself. Uh, Reifying means it's, it immediately forgets or is never really conscious that it's all constructed, it's being constructed. Self and other world, the way it's uh, looking to us, mind's constructing it and interpreting it moment to moment, not conscious to us, 
and then we unaware of that, that that ongoing constructing process, reifying and grasping, we just take it as the world and react to it. And that further imprints the tendency to keep constructing, reifying, uh, and reacting. And that's the core of samsara, as it were, the Buddhist term. Revolving through um, various modes of uh, suffering and uh, identifying with the causes of that suffering. So in the releasing phase of all these meditations, we're, letting, we're learning to let these loving qualities help the mind trust enough in what's beyond that ongoing constructing, reifying, self-clinging, grasping process, trust enough in what's beyond that to begin to let go of its identification with that process. Is that sort of clear? In the releasing phase of each of the meditations, the instruction is signaling that possibility. If the mind begins to feel ready to trust enough to let go into what's beyond all that. That requires some trust because the mind doesn't really know cognitively what is beyond all that. All it's used to knowing is, is that. Its own constructions and reactions to them. That seems to be the world. That seems to be who we are and who everyone else is. So to let go of that is kind of a big thing. You'd have to have a lot of trust in what's beyond that. This is where the field of care type of frame of practice can be so helpful because part of what the field of care signals, especially with regard to the level of benefactors and spiritual fields and spiritual benefactors and things like that, is that others have let go like that and it's been okay. It's like we have to know that others have done that and they seem to have survived and even seem um, happier for it. So maybe it's okay, that can help us trust a little bit. That's a key element of what refuge means as well. The Buddha and many, many of, uh, of those who followed his kinds of practices, or the practices that were transmitted through cultures from his time, seem to have been able to let go into what's beyond the ongoing uh, self-clinging constructions and reactions. And we're all the better for it. So maybe we don't have to be so afraid of letting go into what's beyond all that. Maybe that's much more safe than what we've been taking safety in or taking refuge in, which is our reactions to the ongoing construction process. Okay, so far, this is really straight traditional Buddhist analysis. So... In, it's for that reason that in all our prior meditations, what they're doing is interrupting that, that ongoing uh, constructing, reacting process in a way that's beginning to evoke the, the loving qualities from our underlying awareness from beyond that reacting process. And then we can, in a sense, draw upon those qualities, not waste them, <laughs> but uh, uh, let them intensify through the modes of practice we've been doing, field of care, uh, going into inclusive mode, compassion practices, letting those qualities intensify, magnify, and finally in the releasing phase, letting them help our mind, perhaps if it's ready enough, with enough practice, to let go of its self-clinging posture 
and begin to relax into what's beyond. Like the, the loving qualities can help the mind trust enough to relax into what's beyond the constructing, reacting process, which the mind doesn't cognitively know what's beyond it. But it's feeling the loving qualities that come from that beyond. So maybe the loving qualities can be the gentle messenger from that beyond, that beyondness. The loving qualities are like the messenger of the wisdom from beyond, perfection of wisdom. So the loving qualities can help us trust that beyondness Trust that there's a source there, a wisdom from beyond the reactive process. That the loving qualities are coming from. So we can trust them enough at least to sort of take us by the hand and help us over toward their source. The innate wisdom of what's beyond the reactive process. Is that okay? Then, uh, in that way, then, the mind may be able to trust and relax enough to begin to settle into the spacious source of those loving qualities, which is uh, a pervasive openness and clarity and simplicity of awareness beyond all the frameworks of mind, beyond all the reference points that the mind has been constructing and reifying and grasping beyond all prajaparamita, wisdom, from beyond, really. Sometimes translate transcendental wisdom, that means wisdom from beyond, or that's beyond all the frameworks. So in this way, the, the uh, in a sense, the generation of love and compassion and all those associated qualities we've been engaging uh, is in synergy with the wisdom beyond all of our uh, self-grasping patterns of reaction. They're in synergy with each other. I know that word is bending to bound a lot, but I'm not going to avoid it because it actually, it does mean something. It can actually mean something. So I'd like to bring forward what it actually means, which is the, the stronger and purer the love and compassion and associated qualities, the stronger the power in the mind to release its grip, its, self, its self-grasping kind of defensive posture, to release that into the wisdom beyond it. And the more the mind learns to release itself into the wisdom beyond all of the self-grasping reactivity, the more that the innate capacities of love and compassion and responsiveness and resonance and insight uh, and um, uh, courage and creativity, the more these innate capacities are freed up to be able to emerge more and more. Because the, 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 the commitment of the mind to total identification with its reactive processes is relaxing. And the basic space in which these qualities can more freely emerge is being accessed.
So in this way, practices of love and compassion on the one hand, and practices of deepening in our innate wisdom of openness and lucidity and vast capacity uh, are in synergy with each other. Each is helping the other emerge more and more. And that's already been happening in and through all of our practices with that combination of uh, evoking qualities of love, compassion, etc., and letting them help us release, letting them help our minds release their, their grip into the uh, innate awareness or wisdom beyond all that reactivity, which frees up the mind, empowers actually, and frees up the mind to, for uh, more love and compassion to flow. And some of you may have also begun to experience some of that, a sense of that synergy. Somehow things, perhaps at some moments, were flowing more freely, just more spontaneously flowing. Other times less so, because the mind's caught up in its reactive kind of holding patterns. That's fine. I mean, that's how we're conditioned. But we're learning how the mind can relax its intense tightness, like commitment to its reactive patterns. It can, it can, it, with, it needs help. But with that help, it can, it can learn that it's okay to relax that grip into what's beyond it. And that what's beyond it is uh, profoundly okay. And we can begin to experience, oh, this is actually uh, much more deeply okay than all the ways that um, the mind has attempted to find safety and security by getting and having and struggling uh, amidst all the different parts and senses of self in the mind, reacting to this and reacting to each other, and then another sense of self, and then another sense of self, and then the next one feels guilty about what the former sense of self was, was thinking, but then what do I do, but then which sense of self is that I, and then on and on and on. Uh, that there, there could be more safety than that in this world, starting in, in the ground of our being, um, a kind of a ground of refuge there, something that could be relied on. Whereas the patterns of reactivity that our mind has been committed to are just not, just cannot be relied on. But that's not a statement, that's not, in, in Buddhist understanding, that's not to be taken just as a statement of ideology or belief, but we have to really explore it in our own experience. So I'm saying it not so everybody will just agree, but to signal that that's a direction we could explore in our own experience. Is that, is that right? See how that is for you. A lot of people have felt it was right. Maybe they're all wrong. See. Maybe our usual ways of reacting to everything are the, are the great place of safety and security. That is implicitly what most of us believe, what most people believe from our behaviors. So, to come back to this key point now, because um, I'm about to introduce the letting be meditation again that we did the very first evening here. There's always been, from the point of view of the uh, Tibetan Dzogchen tradition that I'm, that I'm sharing from, there's always been a background or a basic ground of total spaciousness uh, or openness 
uh, or basic, a basic space, as I've said, in and through and, and behind everything that we're experiencing, though it's generally not been conscious to us. So like, like I've said the first evening, I think this can be really helpful because I think many of us or all of us have had a taste of this in little moments when, it could, when the basic uh, space in the ground of our being could kind of peek out for a moment before the usual reactive patterns of our mind just like close it all up again. And, oh, I've got to take a picture of this because this is really amazing, you know, wow. You know, and then, of course, it's, it's, this, the space is completely you know, uh, covered up. The mind's oriented to do that because it thinks that that's where it'll find safety. Firm, clear reference points, as narrow as, narrow as possible. It's really like Shakespeare, like the whole world is a stage. Everything's a, narrowed into a drama about con- narrow concerns, about narrow senses of self and their frames of reference and collision with each other within the person, between persons. So that's what the world becomes to us. Then there could be a moment when there's a kind of an opening up. I mentioned that the first night. And maybe, uh, maybe you can remember that. A moment when it just feels like something has opened up. So I mentioned just examples of this, but please think of your own examples. Like after a long, a long walk, maybe in the evening, and you wind up on a hillside gazing on, the, on a sunset sky or overlooking an ocean or a great lake. Or, and uh, then suddenly and spontaneously, a sense of utter uh, uh, openness, simplicity, peace, clarity, <laughs> and vivid clarity, a kind of an awesome felt sense to it, often accompanied by a sort of a quiet sense of awe, may dawn on you. Try to remember your own examples. It doesn't have to be on a hill or the ocean, but your own. So there's like a pervasive quality of, of basic space and awareness was always available in the background of your experience, but it, it, now it's dawning momentarily. And that, that's a glimpse of what in Tibetan meditation traditions would be a glimpse of what's called shamatha on openness and clarity. Shamatha, tranquil abiding of the mind uh, on spaciousness or space and clarity. Kind of a moment of access to the pervasive spaciousness of clarity that's available in the background or ground of our experience. There's a moment of access to that. And as I said, the releasing phase of all the uh, sustainable compassion meditations we've been doing help us, help us begin to reconnect with that. So my sense is that many of us, if not all of us, have already connected with it in moments in our life, but we were, again, we're located in a society and um, a modernistic society and culture um, that has learned to largely ignore these more intuitive dimensions of experience that may open up. So they're almost automatically designated by our mind as something to either get a hold of and manage and control. I'll take a picture of it and show it to my friends. Of course, when you look at the picture, it's not the same. Although it can, of course, be a little bit evocative. 
can help you recall it. But if you just stick with the picture itself, it's just largely now hidden what it is that opened then. Uh, or uh, to simply ignore it because it can't have any importance at all. Because it has nothing to do with the kinds of things that matter in our modernistic uh, world. It has nothing to do with anything that matters. What matters is how other people think of you and how well you can navigate that in a way that can bring you some success or security and a few of those that are close to you or the cause that matters to you. But so this kind of basic space opening up for a moment, completely irrelevant and completely unimportant in, in modern terms. So we're thoroughly conditioned to ignore it, forget it immediately. Maybe, can you remember a time when you were uh, maybe as a child and you're out there somewhere, I don't know, out back, <laughs> gazing at the sky or a very tall tree or something, and for a moment you're like, huh. Oh. <laughs> and then one of your parents says, Johnny, time for dinner, stop dawdling. <laughs> So we learn, we learn very quickly that that's just silly stuff or, that's, or doesn't even exist. So we're, we've been socialized to pay no attention to that. Or, as I said, to just take, manage and take control over it through our, our smartphones. We don't know how to let it get more power over us in a way to allow it which is more the depth of our being, more of our true being, more of what we really are or who we really are, to let that have more power. We haven't known how to do that. Because we both haven't seen it that way out of our social conditioning, that those kinds of moments of opening and we don't have any practice for cultivating a receptivity to it, by and large in modern societies. After all, all that is unimportant. There are other th everything else is more important, everything. Having enough to eat, of course, is important. Clothing, shelter, uh, being well enough thought of that people aren't out to get you all the time not being uh, overrun and killed by enemy forces. These are extremely important things. That what they don't quite address is what's the point in trying to survive all that? Why? Why live? What's the deepest purpose of being a human being alive in this world? We need food and clothing and shelter and all these other things so we have the support we need to be able to take up and fulfill our, our deepest purpose. But they don't define what our deepest purpose is. So what is it? So from this perspective, our deepest person's purpose ultimately is grounded in something 
much more foundational than all the agendas around just trying to survive. Those agendas can support a life that has found its deepest purpose or that has not, but they're not its deepest purpose. So the primary goal of Buddhism is to come into discernment of, recognize, and then learn to actually fulfill our deepest purpose as human beings, which in Buddhist terms is to awaken to our deepest and fullest capacities for the sake of all. Other religious and spiritual traditions have their own ways of framing something very analogous. So the next meditation of letting be, which means letting be within uh, our body and breath and mind, like the releasing phase of all the meditations we've been exploring, can help us to settle further into the very the background or the very ground of our experience, which is a ground of pervasive openness and clarity and peace and simplicity of awareness, uh, which has tremendous capacities in it that can then become freed up a little bit to emerge more uh, as we take them into various aspects of, uh, of practice or of life. Capacities, again, of love, compassion, responsiveness, creativity, and so forth. So the letting be meditation is really like the releasing phase of all of our meditations, but uh, just in a kind of fairly direct uh, kind of immediacy to it of just settling in more and more into the ground of our experience. If, uh, for those of us who may have reached a point where we kind of trust the process enough and where it's coming from and what it, what it settles into, that we're willing to just explore just settling into it, settling into that ground. Part of that synergy of the wisdom of the ground of our experience and the qualities of love and compassion and so forth. So, shall we go ahead? What the heck? Someday someone's going to answer that question. And I'll tell you what the heck is. Yeah, we can uh, stretch a little bit in our place. So just the process of settling into what's beyond the reactive process by helping the reactive process just unwind. Okay. So you can sit with the back comfortably straight, eyes open and gazing downward. <coughs> it's kind of <coughs> important in this meditation to have eyes open if you can. So eyes open at the beginning of the meditation, gazing downward. Later in the meditation, uh, we'll let the, the gaze of our eyes raise up a bit, more level. 
and uh, become a kind of a, a panoramic gaze. At the beginning, the eyes could be um, gazing gently downward. And then we just come down from the thinking mind into the body, feeling it as a whole. You can take a slow, deep breath, inhaling from the abdomen so it expands, and then exhaling slowly and completely. That slowly and completely exhale is important. And you can relax a moment if you'd like after the exhale, and then repeat a few times. And now while still breathing from the abdomen, just let the breath settle into its own natural flow. Just feel the abdomen expand and contract with each breath. And let that feeling of the body moving with the breath just draw you into it more and more, breath by breath. Now just notice any feeling of tightness or a sense of holding on anywhere in the body, kind of grasping or holding on in the body, and just try to let that relax. So you're just now letting all the bodily feelings settle in their own way, in their own time. Just letting all the bodily feelings settle in their own way, in their own time.
In this way, just deeply let be into the body, letting be. By letting the body draw you into oneness with it more and more. Just letting the body draw you into oneness with it more and more. Unify you with it more and more. as if the body is meditating you. while still breathing from the abdomen now, just feeling the abdomen moving with the breath. And notice any sense of holding on to the breathing process anywhere. And let that just relax. deeply let be into the breath by just letting the feeling of the breath and the body just unify you with it more and more, breath by breath. Just deeply letting be into the breath in that way. Letting it unify you with it. as if the breath is meditating you. as if the breath is meditating you. Now you can raise your eyes to look ahead with a gentle panoramic gaze that kind of spaciously encompasses the whole visual field. leave all senses wide open and just relax into that panoramic sense awareness. 
that panoramic sensory field. Just relaxing into that. And notice any grasping within the mind to any mental construct like holding on to any sense of self or framework of thought. And let that feeling of holding on just relax deep within. While maintaining this panoramic gaze. Let that sense of holding on just relax deep within. And that can help the mind now to settle back a bit inwardly and just come to rest in the background of its awareness, which is naturally wide open and luminous like the sky. So in this way, let the mind just relax into the spacious backdrop of its awareness beyond reference points. Just naturally wide open, limitless, luminous. Let this natural, utter openness of awareness just meditate you. Just letting it unify you with it. This utter openness and lucidity. letting it meditate you. By letting everything be. And let any thoughts and feelings that arise just metabolize themselves within this sky-like expanse of basic space and lucidity.
by letting it all be. And when the mind closes up again and is again holding on to a narrow sense of self, or frame of thought, then again just let the mind settle back a bit into the basic space and lucidity in the background of its awareness with eyes open and panoramic gaze. And let whatever thoughts, feelings, perceptions arise, just metabolize themselves in this sky-like unity of space and clarity. By letting all be.
you can let the resonance of the meditation just continue. Here's a kind of a pith instruction from the Mahamudra tradition, which is complementary to the Dzogchen tradition. Not uh, identified with thoughts about the past or the future. Not identified with thoughts about the present. Just letting the mind rest in its own awareness. Wide open, free of support or reference points. So not identifying with thoughts about the past or the future. Not identifying with thoughts about the present. Just letting the mind rest in its own awareness. Wide open, free of support or reference points. So the first, the three letting bees are of body and breath and mind. The first two letting bees let the natural power of the body and the breath kind of help to draw us into unity with them. Kind of a somatic unity. And the third letting be of mind helps the mind to relax, settle back, and release into the basic spaciousness and clarity and tranquility that's available in the background of its awareness, and which is actually undivided from the panoramic sensory field as well. So the panoramic sensory field, through the eyes, through the, sense, the sensory field of, the, uh, of vision, is also helping the mind to kind of uncover or helping to reveal the mind's essential basic space. So both the panoramic gaze and just settling back about and the basic space of awareness and the basic space of what we experience as an external world are uh, reveal themselves as undivided. It's not a matter of belief. It's just, I'm just suggest, sort of explaining how the instruction lends itself to a discovery of a non-dual basic space that's in and through and beyond everything we're experiencing. Everything we're experiencing through the senses, through our cognitions, through the body, in the mind, everything is basic, is a unity of basic space and qualities of awareness uh, appearing in various ways.
So this, these three letting bees, and then particularly the third letting bee of mind, uh, is entering us into a meditative state called shamatha. It's a Sanskrit word, often translated as something like tranquil abiding or calm abiding. I like tranquil abiding because there's an intrinsic tranquility to it. And in this case, it's a form of tranquil abiding or shamatha. It's called shamatha without support. Shine tenme in Tibetan. Meaning that there's, there's no support of a particular sense object like sound or the feeling of your foot on the ground in walking meditation or uh, uh, the, the uh, vision of uh, a visual image. There's no... Uh, a particular sensory support uh, or, or object. It's, it's, it's without support, without any such object as a focus. It's beyond focus. So it's called tranquil abiding without support, or we could also call it tranquil abiding uh, on clarity and emptiness, clarity and uh, sp- the basic space, let's say. Tranquil abiding on the unity of clarity and basic space. So you might say, well, the unity of clarity and basic space are the object, but the problem is that to the degree that it's uh, really emerging, the experience is actually of no object at all. Uh, Utter openness. No no boundary to that. No uh, reference points to it. So it's called tranquil abiding without support. It's quite profound. It's kind of a doorway of entry into deepening levels of unification with the ground of our being, with Buddha nature as this unity of basic space and clarity or lucidity and uh, vast capacity. It's like a doorway into deepening levels of unifying with that ground. Shamatha without support. Okay so far? That's the basic idea. So we're not focusing on a particular object in the foreground of our attention, like a sound or an image, but we're settling into the pervasive openness and pure cognizance that's always in the background or really the ground of our awareness because it's also there in the foreground as well. But we need to settle into it a little bit to come to a recognition that it encompasses everything. What we've experienced is inner or outer. Uh, It encompasses it all. It's beyond those reference points. So we're not focusing on a particular object, but kind of settling into the pervasive openness and pure cognizance that's always here in the ground of our experience. It could also be called the very essence of our experience. Because it's not a ground sort of like we have to trace the experience back to something else, which is its ground. The ground is undivided from the experience as well. So the meditation Instruction is, is kind of like, like the settling back a little bit inwardly and coming to rest in that basic space, clarity, background of awareness. 
it's, it, in the way it's Sogner Bache, my, uh, my teacher uh, in this practice, uh, expresses it, I think is really evocative. Uh, does anybody remember what a cameras are? I mean, we used to have those. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, because harder and harder to actually talk about anything because everything's, everything's in the past. And we, <laughs> If you're, in your, if you're in a classroom of 21-year-olds, they don't remember 90% of what you would use as a comparison, right? Uh, I used to always like, check with the classroom, you know? Uh, like I'd use an expression like, well, that's a horse of a different color, and they're all looking puzzled. <laughs> How many people have heard the expression, horse of, the horse, the horse of a different color, you know? Right, but in the classroom, maybe two people raise their hand out of, out of 30. Um, so I taught them what it meant. And, uh, and, but the, 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 it was, I required them, though, if, if I'm going to teach you what it means, then you have to, uh, around campus, you have to share this. <laughs> you have to bring back the same. I want to hear this being said on campus at the appropriate times. So some of the students thought that was just a joke, but some of them realized that was serious. <laughs> and they, uh, they did it. They began to reintroduce it back into campus. So these are really important things. <laughs> so in any case, the metaphor in this kind of just settling back just a little bit inwardly and with immediacy, you can just reconnect with this background of basic space and lucidity, which is always here. But the mind's so accustomed and conditioned to always be focusing, fixating really on the foreground from the perspective of some, someone seemingly, you know, fixating on that out there, even objects of thought, even, always, all these. So to just settle back a little bit, and that structure of subject-object duality just for a moment just kind of collapses. And it's a basic space that transcends that subject-object duality. It's more, more fundamental than it. It doesn't negate it. It doesn't erase its appearance. But the subject-object duality is no longer defined, no longer the defining. Uh, it doesn't define the nature of things. There's something more fundamental that transcends it that we're now beginning to settle into. Okay? hope that makes a little sense. It doesn't mean that that has to have happened for everyone immediately the first time we do the practice. It's just that's the direction that it can move in more and more. So I say it in order to support that possibility for those interested in exploring that more and more. It's a process of repetition of practice. So the metaphor that Sonia Rupche uses is it's like retracting a zoom lens on a camera. So a zoom lens on a camera can retract a little bit. So it's kind of like that, just settling back a bit inwardly, like a zoom lens on a camera. And now basic space and lucidity are, are, are here. So in that way, we just let the mind settle back a bit into the natural openness that's always, that's always present in the background that we haven't been noticing.
And this background of openness and cognizance is stable. That's a really important point. It's stable, even though our sense perceptions in the foreground, as it were, are um, always shifting and changing. But the basic space and clarity in which they're all appearing is not changing. You follow? That's why as we unify with it more and more and come into more rec- fuller recognition than just an initial taste, it becomes absolutely uh, reliable because it's unaffected by all the changing conditions. It's unconditioned, this unity of space and uh, cognizance is the unconditioned essence or nature of all the conditioned, shifting, changing experiences. That's why from this point of view, the Buddha could arrive at, a, at an unconditioned ground. That unconditioned uh, uh, quality of it is a quality of nirvana. So it's a kind of absolute refuge because it's unaffected. Now that doesn't mean that it's unaware of all the shifting, changing uh, phenomena of experience, of the world, of what everyone's going through. It's not, a, it's not unaware. It hasn't left it behind in that sense of now no longer connected at all, not aware of it. But the kind of nirvana that the Buddha attained in the understanding of Buddhist traditions, particularly the ones in Tibet and East Asia, was an attainment of the unconditioned nature of reality. In a way that had the power to remain connected to the conditioned reality because it's the unconditioned nature of that conditioned reality. So it can stay here, but abiding in a depth dimension of freedom within an unfree world, a world of beings caught up in their conditioned patterns of reaction to everything. So that's called in Sanskrit, the kind of nirvana the Buddha attained from this kind of Mahayana Buddhist point of view, which is common across uh, all the Tibetan Buddhist regions of Asia, the Himalayas and Mongolia and Tibet, and all the East Asian traditions that became dominant in Japan, Korea, Vietnam, and, uh, and China. Uh, uh, the understanding is what the Buddha attained and what we're practicing into, if we, if those of us interested in going more and more into that kind of depth, is in the direction of what's called apratistita nirvana in Sanskrit. Mi nepe nyanle depa in Tibetan, which means a nirvana, an unrestricted nirvana. It can be translated in different ways. But I guess I would translate it unrestricted nirvana 
because it's not restricted to a kind of unconditioned freedom that has left the conditioned world behind. It's not restricted to that, what's sometimes called quiescent nirvana, which is now uh, freed from the conditioned world, but not part of it. Nor is it restricted to, to the caught-upness of the samsaric experience of the world. So, yeah, I mean, the common phrasing that we often hear in ancient traditions of the West is, in the world but not of it. In the world but not of it. Very, very much like that. So I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. So, uh, so the back, this background or ground of basic space and lucidity or openness and cognizance is stable, even though our sense perceptions in the foreground are shifting and changing. So in this shamatha without support, the mind's learning to settle into the intrinsic stability and calm of its spacious cognizant ground, kind of naturally wide open and radiant while still experiencing the expressions of that unity of space and clarity, the expressions which are, in, which are the sensory field and all the conditioned aspects of experience. And with deepening practice and support from teachers who, who have deepened in this and, and community who has deepened in this, not just community as a kind of club of fellow similar thinkers, but of those who have really been deepening in this direction of practice, then shamatha without support can, with that support of teachers and community, can gradually settle into a more fully non-dual recognition of the deep nature of mind, Buddha nature, which is the unity of emptiness and lucidity and vast capacity. Like mud settling out of muddy water is the metaphor to reveal the natural transparency and clarity, let's say it's like the natural basic space and clarity, the natural transparency and clarity of water that's the essence of the water that's always there in and through even all the muddiness, but deepening practice that allows the muddiness to settle out enough that the intrinsic transparency and clarity uh, manifests more and more and more then can be experienced more and more fully even within the muddiness of the world. You can sense the, the, the transparency and clarity even with the muddiness there when you become, come into deep enough to kind of non-dual recognition of that emptiness and clarity. That's the idea. So, it sort of cuts pretty deep. <laughs> And this has kind of been implicit in all of our practices, kind of behind them all, and then in the releasing phase, uh, settling in this kind of direction. But letting be uh, practice just makes the, all these dimensions even more explicit. The synergy between settling into the innate wisdom of <coughs> openness and clarity, <coughs> and learning how to let that free up, free up the mind from its caught-upness in its usual patterns of grasping and reaction to allow more of the innate capacities of the nature of mind, the Buddha nature, to, to be able to emerge more and more freely. 
But that's a long process of, of practice and training. But it is, it, that is the direction and that is what happens. That much I, I now, like not because I fully accomplished it, but because you can, you can come to a point where it's quite clear where it's going if you just keep at it. And it's also quite clear then what <coughs> your teachers who are deep in the practice, uh, how it unfolded. You, you can get a sense that, oh yeah, you can just extrapolate where this would go if you became really deep in it. I mean, but you're not yet. You know, in fact, I'm talking to myself. You're not that deep yet, but you can see where it's going. So that becomes really motivating. Like, oh my gosh, this is quite real. This wasn't all just a big fantasy. I'd wondered if it was a fantasy, but boy, it turns out to be real. You know, like, now what? Maybe that implies a kind of a responsibility to really keep deepening, really keep coming back to it, even in all the difficulties that come up. Okay, so we just have a few minutes left, but we'll have more time next time. But uh, there is a, something there in the back. That was a thumbs up. And then there's somebody. Ah, great. And thanks, Susan. There's someone else there, too. Well, but we only have a couple minutes, sorry. But just to be able to hear you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.